This is a sermon about the Sabbath. It's about rest. We'll be in the Gospel of John looking at the fourth sign of Christ as the Messiah. This sign shows us that Jesus fulfills the blessing of the Sabbath, the rest that was woven into creation on the seventh day. It was once ours. Um, Adam and Eve experienced it in the garden before the fall. And today, Jesus offers that rest in part, and he offers the promise of it forever on the other side of the new kingdom. So let's start by reading our text, John 5, 1 through 18. This is John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there already a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, Jesus was not only breaking the Sabbath, but making himself equal with God. Let's see how. We can't start here in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda. We need to go all the way back to the first Sabbath, the seventh day. It's how the Gospel of John starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word, we know, is Jesus. Genesis is very similar. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the earth was without form and, and void. It's incomplete. But we see God, and we see the Holy Spirit, and we see Jesus, and we see that there is perfect fullness in them. They are complete. And over the course of the next seven days, that completeness is going to envelop creation. So we see light, and it's good. And there's evening, and there's morning on the first day. Then the heavens, and it's good. And there's evening and morning the second day. We see the earth and the seas and the plants, and it's good. There's evening and morning the third day. Then the sun and the night sky, and it's good. And there's evening 
and morning, the fourth day, fish and birds, and again, it's good. And there's evening and morning, the fifth. Animals, and then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blesses them. And he sees everything that he made, and it was very good. And that brings us to the seventh day. And the number seven, we know, the Bible uses to note completeness. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all all of his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There's evening and there's morning every day, but the seventh, a day without end. This is a day of completeness, resting in the blessing of God. Kings and queens of the seventh day rest, and that's who we are supposed to be, complete like God and eternal like God. Now we come to the fall, and we see Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, hiding from their father. We see the curse. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, we read. By the way, rest is not inactivity. Rest involves living and working, but doing so in fruitful harmony with God. The opposite of rest, I think, is restlessness. It's been described as low-grade existential dread. Uh, I I read in an article in The Atlantic, it's how a, a woman from Brooklyn describes how she feels every Sunday evening when she starts thinking about Monday morning work. The Sunday scaries. I don't know if you guys have heard of those. Low-grade existential dread. And I think it describes it pretty well. We see ourselves hiding in the garden with Adam and Eve, hiding from our Father. But it's not just the Sunday scaries that we feel. It's the everyday scaries that we feel, just, just the scaries. Listen to this. So Cage the Elephant, it's a rock band, not a Christian rock band, not for those who don't know. They sing these lyrics. Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't grow on trees. I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. There ain't nothing in this world for free. I know, I can't slow down. I can't hold back. Though, you know, I wish I could. Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked until we close our eyes for good. Low-grade existential dread. We do not live in that eternal seventh day anymore. But there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, it says in Hebrews 4.9. So we pass through time, and now we find ourselves in the wilderness with the Israelites traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. And in Exodus, we see God rain down bread from heaven, and each day the people go out and they gather bread, enough for that day only, except for the sixth day. The sixth day they gather enough for two days because on the seventh day they don't gather. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. This is in Exodus 16. The Sabbath here is a call to trust God's promises and provision. A little, a little later, we see God descend down on Mount Sinai, and Moses gets our law. The Israelites are to rest on the Sabbath just like God rested on the seventh day, we're told in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment. And then in Deuteronomy 5, we get a little bit more color with this commandment. The Israelites are to rest on the Sabbath to remember that they'd been delivered from slavery, redeemed. The Sabbath is a sign, a covenant sign between God and the people of Israel. It says very clearly in Exodus 31. 
But as we know, as we continue reading the Old Testament, that the Israelites never taste that seventh day rest. They enter the promised land for sure, but not the rest that they had in the garden. We read about the judges and the kings of Israel, and we know that things are still not right. We read about the prophets calling on Israelites to worship God and not idols to remember the covenant, and they don't. They're exiled, and again, they find themselves without the promised rest, without the, the temple, but the promise still remains. And they return from exile, and they rebuild the temple. The emphasis on remembering the covenant as a sign, the Sabbath rest, returns through the leadership of Nehemiah, who reminds the people to keep the Sabbath in Nehemiah 13. But the heart and soul of the Sabbath fades, and the call to trust God's provision the call to trust God's deliverance from slavery and the call to remember the covenant he made with them, it fades. And years pass by and the Sabbath blurs into legalism in which oral tradition and religious debate leave people with very specific things they can and cannot do on the Sabbath while they forgot what the Sabbath was really for. Remember, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, 7 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Then comes the Lord of the Sabbath. So in the gospel, Jesus' healings and miracles on the Sabbath, on Sabbath days, are a major point of conflict with the Jewish leaders over and over again. His claim over the Sabbath, in fact, is a root cause of their intentions to kill, them, kill him. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, we read three versions of the same story. It's when Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field, picking the grains and eating them, and the Pharisees see them and accuse them. They say, you're breaking the law. And Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here. A new order has come, and Jesus uses the Sabbath as the tip of the spear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is claiming that he was there on the seventh day rest. He knows what the promise is for, what it means, the promise it holds. And he's telling the Pharisees that what they've turned it into is a far cry. He will provide that rest. Not the law, not religious tradition, but him. And we've seen three signs so far in John that show that Jesus has brought in this new world order. If you remember, Jesus turned water into wine. There was six jars used for purification, and those six jars represented the old, um, old order, the old covenant, and Jesus replaces that water with wine, the new order, the new covenant, the fulfillment of the law. And it's also a foreshadowing of the wedding feast that we read about in Revelation 19. Now, not everyone sees this sign, but the disciples see the sign, and they believe. Then Jesus cleanses the temple, using the de desecration of the temple sacrifices, the old covenant, to introduce the new temple sacrifice. The crucifixion and the resurrection. Destroy this temple, and in three days, Jesus said, I'll build it back up. And later, after the resurrection, when the disciples see the risen Lord, they remember that he said this, and they believe. 
Nicodemus then comes in the book of John, and Jesus explains this new world order, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And God is with you, Nicodemus says. We see the signs you do. You must be born again, says Jesus. And Nicodemus, while he believed the signs, he didn't yet understand that salvation is now in faith in Christ alone. And next we see the Samaritan woman. She believed, and many in her village believed without seeing any signs. Jesus sees her at the well, and he says that he can give her lasting water. Sir, give me this water, she says. I know that the Messiah is coming, and he will tell us all things. I am the Messiah, says Jesus. This is the first time that Jesus refers to himself directly as the Messiah. In fact, it's the only time he says it directly. And she and her entire village believed, not because Jesus worked miracles, but because they tasted the living water. Jesus' word went to work on their hearts and on their souls. We have heard for ourselves, they say, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And then comes the official son. It was desperation and faith in Jesus' miraculous healing and his ability to heal that leads him to plead with Jesus to come and heal his sick son, his dying son. And his son is healed, and the, officials, and the official believes not just in Jesus' miracles anymore, but in Jesus as the son of God who's ushering in this new world order. Go, your son will live, says Jesus, and it was so. Water to wine, the new temple, and the official son, and now we arrive at our scene, the fourth sign, the healing at the pool. So, the dynamics are changing. The Jewish leader's skepticism now is changing to outright contempt. And their hesitancy, outright hostility. Battle lines are drawn and sides are being chosen. There's the old covenant. Upon this old covenant, the religious leaders had built a societal order. They had religious traditions. They had moral codes. It was based on the Jewish law, but at times, like we see here in this story, it was based on the strictest interpretation and application that reached beyond their true intention. And we know that the law is good, and we know that the law is right, but we know that the law is just a pointer to God's holiness, all right? The law is not a mechanism for achieving righteousness. It's always been by faith that righteousness is obtained. Romans 4.13 says this, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise came before the law. Now there is the new covenant that Jesus is revealing, the fulfillment of the law. This new world order is built upon Jesus as the Messiah, the word made flesh, God incarnate, Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here in John 5, Jesus reveals that he is the son of God and he does it using a debate about the Sabbath as his springboard. This will be his claim and the Jewish Jewish leaders are gonna try to kill him for it. So Jesus and the lame man, John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem 
by the Sheep Gate of Pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So our setting is the Pool of Bethesda. And here, there, there are many people who spend the day uh, because the, the pool was thought to have healing powers. Verse, verse 4 seems to be a sort of footnote added to later manuscripts um, explaining the lame man's response in verse 7. It's excluded from many versions of the Bible and the ESV that, that we usually use. It's excluded from that. And if it's not excluded, if it's in there, it's asterisk with a footnote clarifying that it wasn't a part of the original text. Uh, so we shouldn't consider it scripture, but let's read it. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's verse 3, going into verse 4. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was healed of whatever disease he had. Um, so, but verse 4 makes it clear that there was this religious superstition about the pool. And the lame man believed that superstition, and that's why he was there. When Jesus saw him lying there, starting in verse 7, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, someone else steps down before me. So just as the purification pots at the wedding couldn't be confused with the wine of the new kingdom, and the well could not quench the deep thirst of the Samaritan woman. This superstition, superstitious religion of the layman can't save. And I'm going to take a minute to, to, to kind of talk through this. So we're surrounded by religion, and not everyone categorizes itself as such, but our society places its trust in powers that aren't the true God. Secularization these times preaches to us. Belief in God is good, but it's not the only option. All gods are equally good, it says, and all moral standards are equally good, as long as they're authentic. That's what matters. Whatever you believe is just right for you. Live your own truth, it preaches, and with that authenticity will come some sort of transcendence, filling our lives with purpose. But this does come with a caveat, which we know, Whichever God or whatever belief system you hold to be true, you can't claim that it has authority over another one. This is the gospel of our age, the gospel of tolerance, of acceptance, of celebration, and the diversity of belief itself. But this isn't the gospel, and we know it. And deep down, the world knows it. I think most of you would know the uh, old tune by Credence Clearwater. Long as I remember, the rain's been coming down. Clouds of mystery pouring confusion on the ground. Good men through the ages trying to find the sun. And I wonder, still I wonder, who will stop the rain? Who will stop the rain? Well, not anyone on Twitter. The power of self-actualization or politics or success can't heal or hurt. And neither could this pool at Bethesda. So Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? He asks it of the lame man. And he asks it of us this morning. The lame man gives a reason why he can't overcome certain roadblocks he faces to be healed through the belief he has in the, the healing power of the pool. What reasons do we have that we can't be healed? 
And Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. So 38 years, we can imagine, he goes and treks down to this pool, or someone carries him down to this pool, or some other power that he was trusting in throughout his life, looking to be healed, putting his faith in trust in the belief of the day. He did his research, he gathered his information, and he decided which horse to hitch his wagon to. And then along comes the God-man on his initiative, not the lame's man, you notice. And he offers a taste of the living water, of the wine, of the wedding feast, of salvation. Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now this is how it happens, brothers and sisters and friends. We all have our plans to rid ourselves of that low-grade existential dread that hangs over us. We're in search for the seventh day rest. We count on healing from illness. That will bring its end, we think. But we're healed, and the dread remains. We count on people, on cars, on jobs, on iPhones, on houses, on pleasure, on youth, on success, on acceptance, on degrees and promotions and vacations and children and spouses. And we count on the law. We count on our good works. And still we wonder, who will stop the rain? And out from nowhere comes Jesus, the creator of the seventh-day rest, asking, do you want to be healed? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. And our paths fork, and we have to decide where we're going to go. We hear the call to believe. So, how does this lame man receive the call? And how do the Jewish leaders receive that call? And how do we receive that call? Next verse. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So we have the Jewish leaders now, and they enter the scene as the hall monitors of the Sabbath. They're the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Now, these, these characters, the Jewish leaders, were first introduced in the, in the first chapter of John, in John 1, when they were, asked, uh, they were sent by the priest and the Levites to ask John the Baptist who he was. And they presumably were there, remained there, when John the Baptist bore witness about the Spirit descending down on Jesus, professing that he is the Son of God. We look to another sign in John, and we see deeper into their characters, this is the sign where Jesus heals a blind man. And Dave Corbett's going to speak about this in a couple of weeks. It's a revealing exercise, by the way, to compare and contrast these two signs, these two healings. In this sign, Jesus gives a man sight, and he does it again on the Sabbath. And again, the Jewish leaders question the man about Jesus and him healing on the Sabbath. They interrogate the man's parents, and the parents refuse to, act, to answer, saying, talk to our son, he's of age. 
And there's a little a verse that kind of gives us some context to why that was a scary question for the parents to answer. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out, out of the synagogue. The, leader, the religious leaders here in our story, just as in the one in the blind man, didn't seem to care about the healing so much, just the law-breaking. So I want to take a minute to make something clear. Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. He lived a perfect life. Jesus wasn't breaking God's law. We know that. The biblical definition of work that shouldn't be done on the Sabbath is generally limited to customary employment. But the rabbinic opinion, however, had identified 39 different classes of works, which included carrying anything from one place into another. So in our story, that was the mat that the lame man was carrying. So by Old Testament standards, Jesus didn't ask this man to break the Sabbath, just break the, Jewish tradi the tradition of the Jewish elders. And toward the end of this chapter that Al read, um, Jesus talks directly to the religious leaders. It says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The religious leaders searched the scriptures, but they found only legalism, not life. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is so very clear on this. The best work of the most moral of moral among us will not remove the low-grade existential dread. Only faith in Jesus will. The religious authorities heard the call to believe in the Messiah, and they chose to believe in their good works instead. And this man, this, this man here claiming the authority of God was threatening their belief, and they hated it so much, and they hated him so much that they wanted to kill him, and they would kill him. And I wonder, still I wonder, who will stop the rain? Not the law. And we see the lame man's call to believe. Jesus later sought him out and found him. This man's suffering and his illness was apparently due to sin. So Jesus explicitly connects the healing, you are well, with the need for repentance. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So there are th two things that, that I want to note. The first is, suffering and illness and death are not always tied to individual sin. Now we know that suffering and illness and death are tied to the original sin. None of us live in that seventh day rest. But the Bible doesn't teach that the suffering that you may be suffering this morning can be explained by some moral failing on your part. The book of Job discredits that. When Jesus gives the blind man sight in John 9, before he does it, he starts off, the disciples ask him, was it this man that sinned, or was it his parents that he's blind? And Jesus answers, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be, might be displayed in him. So we should never look down on those suffering tragedy as though we know it was because sin caused it and that we, because we aren't suffering, are somehow morally superior. We're all guilty, and if we don't repent, none of us will enter the seventh-day rest. But the second thing, here the lame man's suffering is clearly tied to his specific sin. So if you are suffering this morning and you know deep down that it's the effect of your sin, Please see the glimmering hope in the story. This man 
clearly was not chosen because he was a good man. The healing wasn't contingent upon his repentance. We sinners, suffering because of our sin, suffering the ache of our sin, the consequences of our sin, the terror of our sin, we sinners, all of us, need healing. And we can have it. We can have it right now. So friend and brothers and sisters, don't wait to come to Jesus till you are rid of your sin. Like we sang this morning, come as you are. If you wait until you're rid of your sin, you'll never reach Jesus because it's only by believing in Jesus that you can rid yourself of sin. He heals us in our sin. But this healing does come with a serious warning. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, he says. So we know that this isn't a call to perfect repentance after accepting Jesus. Galatians clarifies this. Galatians 3 says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being per perfected by the flesh? This, that Jesus is telling the layman, it's a call to believe. Again, like Al read to us, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So if we hear Jesus and we don't believe, then we will come into judgment and we will not pass from death to life. That low-grade existential dread will become eternal dread and it won't be low-grade. The Sunday scaries are not what's really frightening. So what's the lame man's response? Well, we know it's not like the Samaritans. It's not like the blind man's that we'll read about in a couple of weeks. The lame man ingratiates himself to the legal authorities by reporting back that it was Jesus who told him to break the Sabbath. So is he choosing the path of legalism here? Is he returning to other beliefs in his day and age? Or maybe he's just, just kind of dull? Maybe his road to belief takes a little bit longer, a different route. We don't know. It doesn't say. But we can ask ourselves, what is our response this morning? At points in time in our lives, big moments, little moments, but regular moments, Jesus' healing and Jesus' word pierces our hearts in the morning Bible studies, in cars, at, during sermons, while we're worshiping God together. The Spirit pings us, and our hearts jump. And in these moments, we have to decide if we're going to be like this man or the religious authorities. And in moments like these, we have to decide, you and I have to decide if we're going to be like the Samaritans saying, we have heard ourselves, and we know that indeed this is the Savior of the world. So friends, do you believe? Do you hear his voice? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Do we believe? Yes, brothers and sisters, we do believe that we'll enter that rest. So let me close by reading some lyrics to another song by Andrew Peterson. 
can't you feel it in your bones that something isn't right here? Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here, waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. Now, I can see that the world is charged. It's glimmering with promises. It's written in a script of stars, and it's dripping from the prophet's lips. But still, my thirst is never slaked. I'm hounded by a restlessness, eaten by an endless ache, but still, I will give thanks for this. Because I can see it in the seas of wheat, and I can feel it when the horses run. It's howling in the snowy peaks, and it's blazing in the midnight sun. Just behind a veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wings, a swirling storm of cherubim making ready for the reckoning. Oh, how long, how long? Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up, and I'm waking up because I can hear the voice of one. He's crying in the wilderness. Make ready for the kingdom come. Don't you want to thank someone for this? Hallelujah, hallelujah, come back soon. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the creator of the Sabbath day rest, the eternal rest, we are weary and heavy laden, and we come to you. Give us rest. We believe that you are the Son of God and that in you we will find rest for our souls. Amen.